0: Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 22. It's still June, the month when many families celebrate Father's Day, and in today's episode, we're focusing specifically on the role of foster fathers. My guest, Jason Johnson, is a writer and speaker who encourages families and equips churches in their foster care and adoption journeys. Jason is the director of church ministry initiatives with Christian Alliance for Orphans, where he speaks and teaches at churches, conferences, forums, and workshops, as well as encouraging families that are in the trenches and those who are considering getting involved. Jason and his wife Emily live in Texas with their daughters, and he's authored three books with one more coming hopefully at the end of the year. We're going to talk about that in a second, but his books that are out right now are Reframing Foster Care, Everyone Can Do Something, and All in Orphan Care. He also blogs regularly at jasonjohnsonblog.com, and I really recommend that you start following that blog if you aren't already. I so appreciated Jason's perspective as he shared about the role of the foster father. And as you listen, I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. The first question that I always ask my guests is when did your life first intersect with the foster care system? So I'd love to start there with you.
1: Sure thing. Well, um, it was 2010, 2011, um, I was pastoring our young church plants at the time. And uh, my wife and I had been married for almost 10 years at that point and had three little girls. Uh, they were um, six, four, and two when we actually started fostering. But prior to that, um, my wife and I had had several conversations about adoption. We knew that that was eventually something that we were interested in doing and we didn't know in particular what form that might take or how that might play out. And then life just starts to happen. Baby number one, number two, number three, moving and then planting a church, which was a big baby in and of itself um, uh, in a good way. But uh, and it was there really that um, fostering became a thing. Foster care became a thing for us in through a number of different channels. Um, One was we had the opportunity to take many of our uh, families in our church to an adoption conference. And now I say adoption conference because even the word adoption was in the title of the conference. So it was really, really focused on adoption. Um, But we were shocked by the number of people in our young church that wanted to go. And so that kind of showed us, huh, there seems to be, an existing culture of people in our church leaning in this direction already. Interesting. So we went, and my wife and I went, and we actually strolled into a breakout session on foster care. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but we did. And an hour later, we walked out and knew everything is about to change for us. Um, If what this guy just said about foster care in our city is true, Mm -hmm. then it means a couple of things. Everything about our church is about to change, Mm -hmm. and everything about our family is about to change. Uh, Our church in particular, because we very explicitly wanted to be a church for our city, that impacted our city, and we realized we cannot... Effectively, be a church that impacts the culture of our city and pretend like this issue does not exist. Mm-hmm. It's just impossible. Yeah. Especially as we dove into the deeper nuances and discovered that foster care in a city is—it's not just um, the need for children to have homes. There are systemic issues surrounding what leads families and kids into those positions and then downstream from that statistically what happens to kids who don't find permanent safe loving homes or are restored and recon and reunited back into their safe loving and home right so it's just a massively huge issue um and uh and also for our families so we began the training process and it took us um, a lot longer than probably it should have but We eventually made it through, and then in 2012, we welcomed our first placement in, and that's when our world was forever flipped upside down in the best and worst and most beautiful of ways.
0: Yes, I always say that foster parenting has been the best and hardest thing that we've ever done. Um, that's right. Yeah. And there's just no, and I was just speaking to somebody yesterday who's a foster parent and said, you just, you never, you cannot possibly know until you're doing it just exactly (laughs) what this is. But, um, Yeah, but part of my goal here in my podcast is to really amplify all voices, different um, facets of the foster care world. And in this episode, I would really love to talk specifically to the foster fathers who might be listening. Men, maybe their wives are asking them to consider becoming foster parents. Um, And I'll just pause and say that I always tell people, Like if there's a couple who are, who are considering becoming foster parents, I always tell people, if you're not both 100% in and 100% (laughs) sure, I really advise not doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, because I know a lot of times and not all the time, but a lot of times, uh, a woman, a, a mother will get a vision for this and then it might take some time, at least in that's my, in my experience, that's, um, what I've seen where maybe it takes them some time to, you know, um, get their husbands as on board. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, um, well, maybe something of that. Would you share, do you share that? Is that your perspective too, in terms of both people in the couple needing to be all in? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and actually, um, I, I'm I'm actually in the middle of of writing a book slash study just for dads. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love this topic. There's a there's an endless amount of resources, opportunities to connect, be encouraged, supported out there for. Uh, moms, which is good and necessary and right, and there's a disproportionate amount of resources out there specifically for the dads, and not just the dads who are already involved, but um, even even the dads or the husbands who are in the midst of conversations with their wives, and maybe they're not quite where their wife is on it yet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what counsel are they receiving, and what encouragement are they receiving? To, to think about this and to pray about this and to, to take steps forward. So um, absolutely uh, it's imperative that a husband and a wife are, um, are fully on board together and fully committed to this. You never want to be in a position where one of them is able to turn to the other at some point and say, this is, you know, and, and meaningfully say, "This is all your fault. You got us. This is your mess." Right. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, however, kind of taking a few steps back from that, um, that's kind of the conclusion. That's the resolution we all want to come to. That we're okay. We're in this together. We're we're seeing this, and we're ready to move forward together. However, there's a there's a journey that leads up to that, and. Um, we've often heard it said, you know, you need to be on the same page, be on the same page, be on the same page uh, before you move forward, or, or whatever that might be. And I've actually found that maybe, while I appreciate the sentiment, I don't know that um, it's as helpful, maybe, as it's intended to be for for our experience. And what I find for a lot of husbands and wives, and I agree, the the vast majority is life is a little further ahead than the husband. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not always the case, but definitely most of the time. And, um, and and it's kind of presumed that you know, uh, the the wife has figured things out, um, and the husband just you know he's slower to figure things out. Or he'll he'll right. There's something maybe that's not quite clicking for him, and we need to fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for me, what I found is a couple of things. Number one, there's a lot of pressure to be on the, quote, same page before you move forward. And what I found in our marriage of uh, 18 years next week Mm -hmm. is um, we're not always on the same page with things. Um, And that shouldn't prevent us from moving forward. What's more important for us is not are we on the exact same page right now. Instead, it's are we at least reading the same book? Mm -hmm. Like, have we... Have we agreed, like, this is, this is a value of ours, this is, and this isn't just pertaining to this is any major life decision, right? So are we reading the same book? We agree that this is the direction we want ahead. head, this is a value for us and our family, we believe this is right and honoring to God. Are we reading the same book? So my wife and I were reading the same book on foster care, uh, but we weren't on the same page yet. Uh, she was on page 200-something, and I was on page, like, 12, right? right? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that I there was something wrong with me. It just means that um, I needed to read a little bit slower and figure some things out, uh, you know, and she was reading a little bit faster. And so here's what we had to decide. We had to decide, okay, she needs to slow down a little bit, and I need to speed up a little bit. And eventually we're going to land on the same page. Mm-hmm. And what that meant before we say, okay, we're, I think, yeah, we're ready. Like, we, we're fully bought in equally. This is both of us. And so it meant, you know, it, it, but I know that maybe some wives have maybe done this to their husband. You know, ha-ha, I'm sure they have, like, <laughs> Uh, you know, they're they're constantly, hey, we need to bring kids into our home. We need to bring kids into our home. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you? Why aren't why aren't you with me? Mm-hmm. Right? And, mm-hmm. and maybe what she needs to do is just slow down a little bit mm-hmm. and say, hey, maybe before we jump there, there's some other, maybe simpler ways for us to get involved. And the husband makes a, a similar um, commitment. Hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to take some simple steps forward yeah. and maybe that means we're going to start serving a family or we're just going to go to an informational meeting or just something simple and i'm going to start moving forward if you'll start slowing down a little bit and then we're eventually going to meet where we we'll have clarity and we'll take our steps together mm-hmm. moving forward so um that's my encouragement to to husbands who are unsure just find some simple steps forward you can take um and increase that proximity, right? Um, serving a family, going to an informational meeting, uh, and demonstrate to your wife, hey, I'm not entirely sure, I'm not quite on the same page that you are, but I'm willing to move forward, right? And that will speak volumes to your wife, and then vice versa for the wives or whoever's further out ahead to say, I'm, I'm willing to slow down a little bit um, so that we can eventually meet at the same place and, and move forward together. And I just feel like when that, that's kind of the nature of marriage, right? That we serve each other, we help each other, we shepherd each other along and, um, and we trust each other. Like a husband looks at his wife and says, I trust what God has put on your heart. Um, and the wife can look at the husband and say, I trust that even though maybe you're several pages behind me, I trust the commitment that you're making to move forward and to, to kind of press into God on this and, and learn. Right. right. Uh, yeah.
0: So. That's great. That's great. And I'll just pause and say for folks who are listening, um, men and women listening, if you are in a spot where you're considering this and you're wanting to do some more research, I really recommend that you poke around Jason's blog, Jason Johnson mm-hmm. blog dot um, yeah. And the things that you write, I just really resonate. You, you are very honest about the journey. You wrote a blog post recently about um, recognizing the grief that we experience at what we have given up in order to embrace yeah. this life. And I resonate with that so deeply that, you know, it Um, there is a dying of some aspect of the life we could have had the comfort (laughs) that we possibly could have had. We're choosing a harder path, we really are. And um, some people, you know, are dealt a hard path, and some people choose a hard path. And if you choose to be a foster parent, you are choosing a path that is guaranteed to be difficult sometimes. But it's also Mm -hmm. guaranteed to, you know, well, I can't make any guarantees, but I have experienced um, a lot of good, goodness and grace along the way as well, and um, so. Right. But, yeah, that's right. Um, I'd love to pivot to talking specifically about the role of a foster father um, mm-hmm. because this is something, again, I don't think we hear enough about. But um, the episode that I just recorded, which is coming out tomorrow, um, and our conversation will probably come out on Saturday. I'm just rolling them both out this weekend um, in honor of Father's okay. Day. But I was we were talking about the problem of fatherlessness and how a lot of times fatherlessness Is one of the things that contributes to children being in this stream, landing them in the system. And that's a whole big conversation, but just this idea of fatherlessness. So so then you're the one who receives a child into your home, and suddenly you are the father in their life. And we've had several children, I mean a number of children in our home where my husband was the first man. Um, well, a first father, aside from maybe a boyfriend of their mom who had come and gone or something. So you're stepping into Into a role that's pretty sacred and has and pretty fraught for a lot of kids, whether they've seen you know domestic violence or they have been abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused, Um, even just the neglect or the the emotional abuse of having someone there for a bit and then gone for a bit and then back for a bit and then gone for a bit, all of these things. And so now you're receiving children into your home, and you're you're this figure for them. I would imagine that, um, that it's, and I know for my husband, there are some fine lines to walk because you just want to, um, be a safe place for this child. How do you, how do you create a sense of safety for children coming into your home, especially when it comes to things like, you know, bath time and, and, and potty training and things like that?
1: Sure. Yeah. And, for our situation, we have all girls, and so we've only ever brought girls into our home, um, which means there are a lot of um, necessary barriers in place yeah. uh, that essentially immediately, without question, rule me out of participating in certain things. And so, um, and you're right they we have the opportunity, perhaps, for the first time ever, to model and example for them what a safe, loving, consistent, calm um, uh, predictable to a certain degree um, affectionate man looks like, um, because the world that many of them come from is so unpredictable and not calm and not affectionate. And, um, so for me in in particular, I found that one of the best ways to demonstrate that level of trust to these girls, um, was not necessarily in my direct interface with them. Although of course I did directly interface with them, but it was through allowing them to see how I loved my daughters and how I loved my wife and how I treated them. And, um, that they could see here's a dad who loves his girls, um, who plays with his girls, who holds his girls, who talks nicely to his girls. Here's a, here's a man who um, is gentle towards his wife, who loves his wife. And um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, um, you know, we've had young moms with their little babies live in our home and you you know, in particular, a seventeen-year-old girl, and my wife and I would purposely, you know, hug and be affectionate in front of her, and you know, purposely want to like gross her out, you mm-hmm. know, and <laughs> um, and we'd kind of ha 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 laugh. But you know, my wife would also say, "Hey, look, you know, look, G. We'd call her G or, or Giana, Like, you find this is what you want in a man. Like, you you want you want to find a man who who loves you like this and." And who loves your kids? Um, she now has three. Uh, mm. Right. So just modeling that, um, a sense of security. So I, I find that for many men, one of the hesitations, and I could, I totally could relate to this, one of the hesitations in getting involved in the first place and one of the things that kind of kept me from maybe, quote unquote, reading a little faster and getting on the same page as my wife was this this inherent kind of intrinsic need my family
0: can you say that again things. you just cut out for a minute you said the intrinsic oh, need that's okay
1: yeah so for me early on and probably one of the things which prevented me from quote-unquote being on the same page as my wife faster was this I felt this inherent kind of intrinsic need to protect my family right. to protect my daughter to protect mm-hmm. my and um I had to come to terms with the fact that that's a God-given thing, I think, for men and for husbands and dads. I, I want to protect and provide for my home. And now here I am being confronted with something that, that is hard and difficult that, we, that we're being asked to bring into our home. And that is so counterintuitive to this feeling of I want to protect. Um, and so I'll never forget going to our very first orientation class And the instructor of the class that night was a caseworker, and she began to share with us about a case that had come across her desk that week. And it was the case of a a little girl who was the same age of one of my little daughters at the time. And as you can imagine, um, what this little girl had experienced that week was horrific and awful. And I found myself sitting there thinking, um, just getting angry, just thinking, why isn't anyone there to protect this little girl? And I would give my life to protect my little girl, that Mm -hmm. same age Mm -hmm. from those kinds of things. And why isn't anyone there to protect? And I kept thinking this and it was almost as if the heavens opened up, Mm -hmm. the red Sea split Mm -hmm. and, you know, the voice of God says, interesting, Jason, that you are so concerned in a good way with protecting your family and yet you are equally now burdened um, by the fact that no one's there to protect that little girl. Yes. Maybe, maybe you should, mm-hmm. right? So my encouragement to a lot of dads and husbands is to take that, that sense, that, that, that God-given need to protect and expand its application. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And... And then as kids come into your home, I think one of the best gifts that you can give those kids is this feeling of being protected. Yeah. Um, and it's just safe, and I don't have to worry about when he comes home, what's he going to be like, right? Yeah. Uh, is it, is it going to be a monster who walks in the door? Is he even going to come home? This sense of safety, consistency, that's why I used the word predictability before. Like it sounds boring and monotonous, but gosh, no, just there's a certain rhythm in the home and a certain vibe in the home that the husband can help create that provides this sense of security and safety um, for for these kids. Yes. So that, that's, that's been our experience and and most of the things that I've tried to focus on.
0: Yes, yeah. that really resonates with me. And again, in some of the conversations that I've had, especially recently, um, I've had a few conversations with different foster parents who were facing some very challenging circumstances that were kind of a, a, a doorway where they needed to choose either we're going to go all in with this child who we know the road is going to be long and hard because of a lot of the things mm-hmm. that they're exhibiting. And, um or we're going to choose to pass and let, you know, and and trust that someone else is going to step in. And the question I always come back to is, if not us, who, if not you, who is going to step up for this child? Um, uh, and it, it might not be you. I mean, when I'm speaking to someone, it may, you may not be the right one, but it's a good question to ask <laughs> because every child deserves to have someone who is angry at you know the the things that Mm. have happened to them and i had a foster Mm. teen once who said to me when i expressed to her how angry i was at some of the things she had been through she said no one's ever been angry for me on this before Mm. and it just really meant a lot to her um Mm -hmm. that i was bearing that with her so i think we need to let that drive us right that passion just like you said so um right one of the listeners that I have who's who's also become a friend um, that I invited to send in some questions for you, he was really interested to hear what you would say about community for men who are foster fathers. And um, yeah. specifically, I, I know a couple of of men who are specifically doing things for fathers. I know that there is the offshoot of the Refresh Conference, the road trip, Um group. Yeah. But I don't know a lot beyond that. And, um, and, and I wonder how you have viewed or how you've handled, uh, support for foster dads. Um, what are some of the topics that they need to be discussing in their, in their groups when they meet up on zoom or when they, you know, get together? Um, how do you view specifically community and support for foster dads?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, by and large, and I think most people know this to a certain degree, that um, uh, men connect and relate better together um, through activity, uh, doing things together, which is why uh, those guys that you referenced who I know started the, the road trip, um, the, the camping trip and the hiking trip in Colorado, it's, we're going to go do some stuff together and that's going to create a bond and a trust that will allow us to then sit in circles and be vulnerable with each other. So um, there also tends to sometimes be, I wouldn't say stigma, but um, the idea of quote-unquote support group uh, can sometimes lead, especially men, to feel like that sounds that sounds weird. I don't want to go, right? Like
0: touchy feely, you know, kind of get in touch yeah, with your, like, your feelings.
1: <laughs> right. Right. And I was actually on, on a, um, on a webinar call yesterday with, um, a trainer from a very, from a, from an organization based out of Atlanta. They do uh, wrap wraparound care community training all around the country. And she said that they've even started to not use that word support group mm-hmm. and just try to refer to them as connected groups. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all that to say, I think that language is important um, in terms of how you connect men. I think activity is important in terms of how you connect men. And as they connect, they um, develop that sense of trust and then the ability to be vulnerable. Um, uh, And so in terms of topics, and so what does that mean? It might mean that an agency in a local county or even a, a, a church in a local context Um, says, hey, we really want to serve, uniquely serve foster dads and foster adoptive dads who are in the trenches, Um, I would probably suggest starting with giving them an opportunity to do something together Um, and not seeing that as um, unspiritual, Mm -hmm. um, but seeing it as incredibly essential to forming those trust relationships where guys can then... um, you know, dive in together, if that makes sense. Um, uh, But then in terms of topics, you know, I think um, I I like to say that there are, there's a couple of categories of people in in the lives of foster and adoptive families uh, that are both important. Uh, One category of people is people who love you. And Those are the people who say, we want to support you. We love what you're doing. We love you as friends, as family. Um, But they are not always the second category of people, which is people who get you. Um, There's people who love you, and then there's people who get you. And sometimes they can be the same person. Oftentimes they're not. Um, In the sense that, you know, for example, my parents love us, and my in-laws love us, and a lot of our friends love us, but they don't get what it's like mm-hmm. to be a foster parent, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and then there's those rooms of people who get us where we might not even know them. They're total strangers to us. Yeah. Uh, but we can walk in and we've got such shared experiences together in terms of fostering that, we don't have to explain ourselves to each other. Like, we just get it. Um, and both of those contexts of, of support, I think, are important and essential. That we, as men, are able to connect with people, with other men who get it. I don't have to explain myself to you. I can say things to you that you. I don't have to explain. So, for example, we can create a safe environment where I can come in and say, I got to tell you, guys, I am really not loving biological Mom and Dad, right now. Yeah, um, and the guys in the group go, "Yeah, we get it. You don't need to explain. We understand, mm-hmm. right?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then creating an environment where you can come in with those things, but you don't leave with those things, right? There, this this time together has been restorative. It's been pointing us back to the gospel. It's been healing. It's been encouraging. It hasn't just been a gripe session. Or a therapy session where we're all suddenly professional counselors, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's been a it's been a pointing us back to Jesus session, and I can come in really struggling and or really angry or really defeated, and I can walk out um, encouraged to take my next steps forward. Um, so I think for men, much of it might be. Um, inherent in kind of the cultural narrative for men is this need to perform, this need to produce outcomes, this need to uh, prove worth by what you're capable of doing. And that means you get the promotion, you get the, the bonus, you get the new title, the job increase, the status, the power, all of that. And in the foster care world, um, and in most other spheres of life as well, we have Almost zero ability to control outcomes. Uh, And one of the most encouraging messages for me and I find for other men is the freedom, the freedom to simply be faithful to what God has called us to do and to trust him with the outcomes and to not tie our identity or our worth to those outcomes, um, and so I go back to Hebrews 11, for example, where the first part says that by faith, some people saw the Red Sea split and the walls of Jericho fall. Those are, that's a really victorious outcome, right? Everybody wants to see that. And then the end of Hebrews 11 says that some people by faith were, were sawn in half and they were stoned to death and they were left in caves and holes in the ground, destitute, wandering, right? And we go, ooh, I don't, that's not the outcome of faith that I want. And, <clears throat> and then in the end, it says all of them were commended for their faith, mm-hmm. um, in essence, saying, look, same faith, entirely different outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and so there's going to be times when faith, living by faith, we will see the walls of Jericho fall in the, these kids' and families' lives. Uh, there are also going to be times on this journey when, by faith, we feel like we're being stoned to death. Yeah. And God looks at all of that and says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and so he's far less concerned with the outcomes that we can produce, far more concerned with our willingness to be faithful and to trust him. It doesn't mean we don't fight hard. It doesn't mean we don't advocate. It just means that we don't buy into the cultural narrative, which says your value and your worth are determined by what you're capable of producing and the outcomes that you're able to achieve. Mm. Um. So I just think we, point, we continually point men back to the gospel. We encourage them to serve and love their wives well, create margin uh, for her and for them, uh, to continue to serve and love other kids in their home well, biological kids, um, and to create that sense of security and stability uh, for these kids that they're bringing into their home.
0: That is so good, Jason. That is just fantastic um, perspective. And um, you mentioned the the several times in this conversation, you've mentioned the power of modeling how you love your wife, how you love your children, Mm -hmm. and um, there is a stream of foster parenting that um, where that's harder, and it is the single foster parent, and Mm. I. Um, I wonder what advice or encouragement you have for single foster parents, um, uh, specifically single men who are fostering. Um, I have a friend, one of the friends who was, who had asked me to have you on is a single foster father. He only takes, um, older boys and, uh, teenagers and, um, he, he devotes himself to these young men, but I know that for him, it has been a very lonely journey. And I wonder what kind of encouragement you give to single men who are fostering.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it, and it really ties back to the previous one about just support and the need for support yeah. and, That's just um, uh, accelerated all the more in those single contexts. Um, A very good single mom friend, uh, single foster and adoptive mom friend of ours once said that um, uh, in part her singleness is a gift because it reminds her daily of her need for community around her Mm -hmm. Um, and where, you know, I I can listen to that and think, wow, I don't know that I Necessarily in that position of needing to be reminded daily of my need for community around me, like she is, right? right? Um, right. And uh, and to a certain degree, I envy that. Um, and uh, so it's it's a constant daily reminder of your need that I need to have good community of people around me, yes. um, and I need to press into that, and that I can't do this alone. And and when we talk about community and support and um, you know, sometimes we feel like, I don't know if I really need that kind of support. I don't know if I really need that kind of community around me. Um, and I like to, especially in these single contexts, remind people of, of the multifaceted dynamics of having that support around you. Um, obviously, the primary benefit is that you as a single foster parent or even a married foster family uh, are, are loved and supported by people. Um, that would be the primary benefit, but there's the secondary and tertiary benefits to it as well uh, that are bigger than just us. Right? right? So it's not just about, do we need it? It's also about, do they need it? Do they need for me, need them. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a slightly more complicated question, but here's what I mean by that is, is when we say, you know what, I'm good. I don't, I don't need anybody. Then we effectively cut off, um, other parts of the body from being able to perform their functions as other parts of the body. We say, I'm an, I'm, I'm an ear. I'm good. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I don't need that eye or that toe or that hand. Right. And when I read scripture, I see that that is a, that's a fracturing of the way the body was intended to work. Um, and so it's not just about me. It's also about me creating space for you to be the best part of the body that you can possibly be. Um, so there's that element that we as foster parents, single or married, frankly, have the opportunity to serve other people by allowing them to serve. Yes. Uh, and a, a secondary and kind of tertiary benefit of that is this. Um, it brings them a little closer to foster care. And so we are creating space to increase proximity for them. Uh, and And what that does is it creates an even more ripe environment for God to kind of work on their heart and maybe move them into even deeper levels. So I mentioned I was recently on this webinar call with this group that does, training around the country. And they found that in their work, the data shows that about a third of the families that they are recruiting to become foster families are actually coming directly from the base of volunteers that they have helped build around existing foster families. Mm. So about a third of people. So they say, look, we found that when families, uh, are open to having volunteers around them and serving them then what we found is that there is a 33 a percent chance that one of those volunteers will themselves eventually become a foster family right mm-hmm. so it's it's a really powerful quote unquote recruitment on yes. ramp for new family
0: that is great. Uh, and
1: then yeah. and then they show data based on their work that something like 90 percent who have a care community around them who have said yes to I need the support of people around me, 90% of them uh, move on past their first year of fostering. And statistically, nationally, I think it's something like 50% of foster families quit after their first year. Yes. And what data is now showing is, well, unless they've got really good support around them. So right. it increases retention. So single I think it's just on steroids, right? It's Mm -hmm. just like my friend said, it's this daily reminder that I'm in absolute desperate need of the supportive community around me. But then what a gift they're giving to those people who are serving. They're bringing them a little closer. They're creating an environment where they can be the ear or the eye or the hand. And they're also increasing the likelihood that that person might end up one day getting even more deeply involved in foster care Um, then maybe they would have had I not given them the opportunity
0: to be around us. Yes. That is such important perspective. And I really appreciate you saying that. I think it's so true. It's so true. And... um, we kind of lower, lower the veil in some ways, the mystery that a lot of people have. They're curious, but foster care just seems like, and that's how it was for me. It seemed like this, I was very curious and I was committed to it, but, um, also I didn't, I didn't know what went on in foster care. And, um, so being able to invite people into that journey and let them experience it with you is really giving them a gift. So, um, yeah, um, one of the things that I am increasingly aware of and passionate about the longer I've been involved with foster care and adoption is, um, is family preservation and efforts to help with reunification. Um, as a new foster parent, reunification was something I was, uh, I would have said, um, I'm okay with. Um, or I understand that my role is to support reunification and I could repeat the script, but I didn't have a passion for it. But now that I'm years in and, and downstream of all of the, you know, the things that go along with it, it's just become more and more, um, something that's on my radar. And a question that I have for you and for a lot of foster families listening is, um, have you had an opportunity to, to get to know any of the fathers of the children that you've had in care over the years.
1: Unfortunately not. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're often, most of the time they're not, I mean, we haven't either. And, uh, and that's why it's even just the conversation I had yesterday was so really remarkable to me because I, every child we've had except for one um, the father wasn't, they didn't even know, they didn't even have his name or know who he was. So, I mean, uh, and when they did, he was completely out of the picture, which, you know, mm-hmm. which raises a whole other thing. And, and that's a long conversation, but, um, but I was just curious about that. Um, Jason, I, I would love to have a whole other conversation with you about foster care and the church. And I wonder if you'd be open to me yeah. inviting you back on to just talk about that sometime.
1: Absolutely. I saw a couple questions yeah. related to that and thought that's a whole, that's an eight hour workshop. Is. It is. And in fact, <laughs> we right. might
0: just send people to your, your resources online. And, and once again, <laughs> I'll put a pitch in for your books and things. But I do think that, you know, having these conversations on different platforms, you know, is a way to continue spreading this this conversation, this idea, and for people listening who are in that space. Not all my listeners are. I have a lot of listeners who are from outside of the church, um, but I would love mm-hmm. to have you come back on um, and just do a whole, a whole conversation on that, especially for people who are wanting to start something at their church. So um, I'm going to be reaching out to you again about that, but... The last question that I have for you is one that that one of my listeners asked, but it's also something that I am constantly wrestling with. And it's the question that every foster parent gets multiple times, not the question, but the statement, where people tell us things like, you are such a saint for doing this. Um, Mm -hmm. You are a real hero. It takes a special kind of person with a special calling to do this. Um, I admire you so much. I could never do what you're doing, all of the above. H- what are some of the ways that you have learned over the years to respond to those kinds of comments?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's one that everyone in this space will encounter at some point, if it's the well-meaning person at church or the checkout person at the grocery store, whatever it might be. Um, I try to encourage families to put themselves in the mind, the mindset of the person who's saying those things and to do it, uh, in a way that maybe shifts certain biases or assumptions. It's often assumed that that person is saying those things to create distance for themselves. Like that's a special thing for special people that you do. And, um, this is a way for me to kind of push my myself out of any responsibility to do it. Um, and, uh, and I, I try to kind of think of it as actually what I hear is someone who doesn't have a right perspective of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that they have a flawed perspective of me. It's that they don't have the right perspective of themselves. Uh, for the most part, I believe that people when they look at hard things, um, and they assess, their involvement or not and what it might cost and what it'll take, they determine, I don't have what it takes to do that. Um, I don't have what it takes to really make a difference. I don't really have what it takes to sacrifice like that. I don't have what it takes to love like that. And so for the most part, I try to view these statements. You're amazing. You're awesome. You're wonderful. You're a hero. You're so special through the lens of this is coming from someone who, who thinks I don't have what it takes to do that. Um, and I, and, and I want to kind of help them create a grid for how to deal with that because frankly, nobody has what it takes to fully do this. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not that somehow we've arrived and you haven't, it's no, we're all in the same boat. We've just learned how to have a a different relationship Mm -hmm. with the fact that we don't have what it takes. Yeah. We've learned. I don't have what it takes, but I'm not going to let that stop me. Mm-hmm. Um, They—they're not there yet, and so we can. So they're doing their best. I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're doing their best to put words to something that they don't fully understand. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll try to do this very, very briefly. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite research studies done years ago by a PhD student at a. Uh, Ivy League school is was a study done on what is called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge basically says once you know something, it's almost impossible to put yourself in the mindset of someone who doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. So it's what... I tell people that's this is what would make me a really, really bad kindergarten teacher because I know one plus one equals two, and I don't really want to have to spend a lot of time explaining it to someone. Why don't you understand? Yeah. One plus one equals two. What's so hard about that, right? <laughs> so it takes a very unique, gentle, loving person to be a kindergarten teacher because they know how to and navigate through that curse of knowledge, right? Uh, but we've all experienced it. We've sat in doctors' offices, and they they rattle off things, and we literally have no idea what they're talking about. So we've been victims of the curse of knowledge because the doctor knows they know it in their head, and they're not um, they're not putting themselves in our mindset understanding. We don't know what they're talking about. So the solution. So the study they did is they put. Two rows of people on each side of a table. One side had headphones and they had songs playing in their headphones. And their task was to tap on the table so that the person across from them could guess what song they were listening to in their headphones. Um, you know, like Star Spangled Banner and Happy Birthday, very well-known songs. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the study, the, the tappers the people who could hear the songs were told to guess how many songs do you think you and your partner will correctly identify? And they said like 50% of the songs. Uh, and then the, the result of the study was that only 2.5% of the songs were correctly identified. And so the 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 purpose was this, is that we typically think we're better tappers than we actually are. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> and because we hear the song in our head mm-hmm. loud and clear and we don't understand what it's like to be the listener on the other side of the table who doesn't hear the song in their headphones. Mm-hmm. And we think if we can just tap it out, then they'll get it. Right. Mm-hmm. And what research shows is that's just not how it works. We've all been on that mission trip, maybe with the the classic American mission trip goer who doesn't speak that country's language and starts to yell at poor foreigners <laughs> Uh, in English, because if I just talk louder yes. and slower, then you'll suddenly understand lingu- uh, English. Well, that's the curse of knowledge. Right. Uh, you just start tapping, tapping harder and louder, and it breeds frustration. So the solution is this: the solution is um, I not to tap harder and louder, and then get frustrated with you when you don't hear the song the way that I hear the song. It's also the solution is also not to get frustrated with you. When you try to encourage me for learning the song, but I don't like the way that you're trying to encourage me. Um, so when people say you're awesome, you're amazing, I can never do what you do. That's their best attempt at trying to encourage you for doing something mm-hmm. that they don't really understand mm-hmm. what you're doing mm-hmm. uh, because they don't hear the song. And so our job is to step back and to slow down and to help them begin to learn the song for themselves, word by word, line by line, so that they can eventually sing it on their own. And how do we do that? We do that with very nice, short responses. You know, they're, they're, these kids are so lucky to have you. Actually, you know what? I appreciate you saying that, but we've actually found, gosh, we're the lucky ones yeah. to have these kids, yeah. right? Um, I can never do what you do. I, you know what? I used to think of that too. I used to think that I could never do this and then and then here's what happened and i realized oh i actually maybe i can do something mm-hmm. right right so i think it's just really good practice for foster families to sit down maybe even with other foster families and kind of come up with a list of of potential things that people could say and then kind of almost script out yes. and practice yep. how you would respond in a helpful way that begins to put words in their head the song that you already know and you really really want them to learn
0: right that's really good Um, and for transracial families that script has to include the inevitable questions Mm. about you know adoption just last week twice two perfect strangers came up to me and started a conversation that they wanted to ask me you know about my son and he's standing right there. And, you know, we've had to work with him on his script when kids at school, you know, are completely incredulous when they see me and realize I'm his mom. And, you know, um, we've had to give him the script and help him come up with his own script. So that's a great piece of advice across the board, but, um, to be prepared because these questions are inevitable and it's hard for me anyway. And I would imagine for other people, if I haven't thought about it ahead of time, it's real hard for me to be gracious or, to to respond in a way that's actually constructive. You know, I can either... And just say, Oh, thank you, which isn't helpful. <laughs> or I can, you know, I can say, Oh, no, I'm not, you know, or whatever. So I think I think that's just such good advice. So uh, Jason, yeah. you've given me a lot of your time today. And I really appreciate it. This has been so helpful and so good. And I look forward to, um, to having you on again, to talk about church and a whole other, you know, side of this conversation. Um, you mentioned a book that you're writing a study that you're doing for for dads, yeah. when when can we be looking for that
1: that's a great question my goal is by the end of the year and with as with everything that i try to write i want it to be multi-purpose so Mm -hmm. it's something that a dad could just read on his own uh also there will be some form of like personal devotion questions in there that could just help guide some thoughts but then also a set of group discussion questions in each section so that it can be used in um, a context for men to, to be together and, and to talk through some of these things together. So yeah, the goals by the end of the year, I appreciate you you asking.
0: That's great. And you've got three books that are available right now. You have a wonderful yep. blog, um, and you have a speaking schedule, which I would imagine has been drastically <laughs> altered, um, by this yeah. current season that we're in. But, um, but people can definitely catch up with you. And then you also offer coaching. Do you want to say anything about that for people listening who would who are thinking, "Gosh, I would love more time with Jason Johnson." How can they get Facetime with you?
1: Yeah. So most of the coaching is for around church and organizational leadership. So I get to spend a lot of time with uh, leaders, leadership teams within churches, hoping to think through best practices, next steps, strategic planning for their ministry. And then likewise with organizations and agencies, get to spend a lot of time doing the same, working with them on their church engagement and on resource development. Uh, but then also, you know, we, we're trying more and more to create opportunities to create um, encouraging and and coaching connection opportunities for families and uh, and parents. And mm-hmm. so even this last May, we hosted a virtual book club uh, for the book Reframing Foster Care. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered is that a lot of agencies and training offices were giving their families credits, uh, uh, ongoing uh, training credits for that. And so we actually put all those up online and people can find them on the website. And if you work through those um, uh, those videos, uh, which are to coach and encourage you, uh, then you can submit a request for a verification of attendance and then maybe take it back to your agency and see if they'll give you training credit court so Mm -hmm. trying to create more and more of those opportunities for families
0: that's wonderful so listeners you can go to jasonjohnsonblog.com and you can find everything that we've been talking about there jason thank you so much for your time and for all you do
1: oh absolutely my pleasure thanks so much
0: you've been listening to my conversation with jason johnson to learn more about his work read his excellent blog and connect with jason visit jasonjohnsonblog.com If you like a fostered life podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you access your favorite podcasts. So you don't miss a single episode. And if you are enjoying this resource, please consider becoming a patron of a fostered life at patreon.com slash a fostered life. For more information and resources for foster parents, visit afosteredlife.com, where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links, all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. If you're a foster parent who is feeling like you're out there on your own, consider joining The Flourishing Foster Parent, a community designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find info on The Flourishing Foster Parent at fosteredlife.com slash FFP. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. One more thing. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening and thanks for caring about foster care.